Almighty and everlasting God, in Christ you have revealed your glory among the nations. Preserve the works of your mercy, that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, October the 17th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Um, it's been a, a good week in a lot of ways. It's been kind of a busy week, not not horrible. Um, it's nice to be back in a gym and working out hard. I've adjusted my workout a little bit just so that I can lift a little heavier this week. And... Um, so it's been a good week, and I've enjoyed seeing friends in the gym and spending time talking to people. We had a friend come up one day this week um, from not over from Knoxville and see us for a little while. Unfortunately, on the way here, she got a phone call from somebody else who said, "Oh, hey, I'm really sorry. I just I was sick on Sunday, and and now I've been diagnosed and I'm positive for COVID." So she <clears throat> they stayed outside and didn't come in because they didn't want to expose us to it. But you know, whatever. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so sick of this mess that I can't stand it anymore. I mean, the world's falling in around us, all this crazy stuff's going on with supply chains and everything else, and and here we sit, and yet we know who's in charge of all things and who's sovereign over all things, and so we take heart and, and we move forward with the knowledge that he is indeed in control of all things, and and so it's been, you know, sort of that kind of a week where we, I feel like for way too long in my life, at some levels, I feel like I've been depending on God's sovereignty in all things. And, and usually when you're, when you're relying on, depending on, resting in God's sovereignty, it's because things are spinning out of control, right? So um, it feels like a long time <laughs> since I wasn't spending a lot of time thinking about God's sovereignty over all things as a way of understanding things as they come at me in life. So I'm looking forward to cooler temperatures starting tomorrow. We're going to have nicer weather. It's, you know, the 80s are, it seems like they're getting ready to break and we're going to drop down into the 60s. The leaves are changing. People are out on the Blue Ridge Parkway seeing the leaves and all that kind of stuff. And so it's been, um, you know, just, it's getting busier. Things are getting busier. College football's here, which is exciting to me. And my team, Tennessee, is playing better than it has in a while. And so I, I'm even more excited about that. So anyway, it's it's good. I, I, I'm excited to see what God's going to do in this next series, in this next season of life. Going to start something new and um, start doing a uh, a little small group on on when, every other Wednesday night with some people and testing out some new teachings. I'm thinking about adding a different podcast to to what I'm doing. And so anyway, I'm excited about that. There's a lot of things going on that, that I that I truly am excited about. But but indeed it is one of those things that where we have to rest in God's sovereignty. And it's it's knowing his greatness and his majesty sometimes is the only place that, that we can stand. And we know that in Christ Jesus and in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that our own eternity is secure as well. And so that, that sovereignty stretches from creation and before, because he had a plan for creation. So it was, it, it was not just, oh, let's see what happens here. So we, we know that his sovereignty extends through all of that. And so when we're doing what we are right now, which is a, a, spending a little bit of time in the book of Job, as we're here in mid-October, the, one of the things that I realized after pastoring a church for a period of time is, is that the lectionary for, um, in the Anglican world at least, 
um, follows a pretty predictable pattern that, that we work through a whole lot of things in the summertime after Pentecost, and we're, we're basically working through the outworking of the gospel in our lives. How do we show forth the image of God um, through the power of the Holy Spirit working through us so that we're becoming more and more changed into his likeness and image and, and bearing that image to the world. And so we're dealing with sin in our lives. We're dealing with with uh, a lot of different things in our lives. And then suddenly in, in late September, early October, we began to prepare ourselves for Advent, actually. And the way that it prepare, the, the Scriptures prepare us for that is to, to reveal to us and remind us Things aren't as they ought to be. For some people, that's a simple thing to see because, well, their lives are not what they ought to be or what they would prefer them to be. And for other people, we just need to be reminded that that no matter how good we have it at the moment, um, that makes us an anomaly. It makes us odd in the world because it's not true for most people. Um, It might be true for most of the people around us, but that can mostly be a function of, of who we end up being around. And so we need the reminder of of great suffering in the world, and we need to uh, to know, and the reminder again, that that whatever we think we know, we hold lightly in some ways. There are certain things that we don't hold lightly, right? I mean, we, we don't hold the truths that are expressed in the creed, for instance, lightly. You know, uh, we believe in God the Father Almighty who created heaven and earth. We don't hold that lightly. We, we don't hold lightly that, that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God who came to earth, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, um, crucified, died, and was buried, and three days later rose again. We don't hold that truth lightly. We don't hold the truth lightly that, that Jesus is the Savior of mankind. There is no salvation except in Jesus, uh, just like Peter said, which is there's no other name given under, under heaven by which a man might be saved. So, so we hold true and we hold tightly to those truths. And then there's other stuff that, that we think we understand that sometimes can only be exposed as faulty through suffering. And that, that's kind of the, the message of Job. Job, as I've said before, Job and his friends don't really have different theology. Their theology is, Job, you must have done something. That's the reason there's suffering in your life. All this stuff happened to you because there's sin in your life. And Job's response to him is exactly the opposite of that. But it's the same theology, which is, I didn't do anything wrong. Therefore, this shouldn't happen to me. And, and Job had come to expect this sort of correspondent relationship between his keeping of the law and doing all the right things and his life working seamlessly and without interruption. And then suddenly, we know the backstory that that. God prompts Satan into this whole thing, and it's clearly because God needed to do something in Job's life, but but he's doing something in Job's life because there's something great about Job, and that's exactly what God says when Satan comes into the council. And so it, we've, we've got to recognize that in, that in Job, we're looking at an extraordinary man. He, he's a man God chose out of all the men on earth and called him blameless and upright— so Satan recognized that truth as well, 
And so we have to recognize that we're not dealing with just some random guy here. This is a guy God thinks highly of. But in order for Job to be maximally effective, and in order for Job to be the man that he's called to be, which is beyond just sort of works righteousness and doing all the right things, but but to be a man who is a lover of God, then a little rain, well, in Job's case, a cataclysmic rain, has to fall in his life. And so for all these chapters, Job has argued with his friends back and forth. And then suddenly in about chapter 31, there's this other guy, this young man, Elihu, who comes and says, you guys, none of you know what you're talking about. You're all wrong, and Job is wrong too. Now, Job wasn't entirely wrong, but but Elihu has some things to say. And then at that point, after he's completed his diatribe really against Job. And he's what he's doing is he's taking God's part in this and said, you know, you're not trying necessarily to um, make yourself something, um, you're not trying to justify yourself, you're trying to drag God down to your level. And you're trying to, to indict him. You're putting, C.S. Lewis would say, you're trying to put God in the dock, which is what modern man has done. I watched a video this week not going to bother telling you who it was because it's just it's awful watching it is awful now the and and what i saw was a theologian a pastor theologian guy who was taken on this radio podcast host um who who had gone on this incredible rant about how we've outgrown god and you know last week i talked to you about nietzsche nietzsche says that um, god is dead and what he meant is modern man's killed him We've decided that we don't have any need for God. And so that's what this guy was saying. He said in a few years, people are going to be looking back and thinking, what was wrong with those people that they believed in things like God and all that, that anybody could know morality? And the the guy has—and so the, the theologian was— just stomping all over every quote argument that was made here, and it was. But it, but it's what reminded me so much of this whole thing in Job, is the way that he speaks, and this guy speaks absolutely with no knowledge at all. Now apparently, since then, he's gotten clued in a little bit more, and so he's not as antagonistic to religion as he was at that time, which was back in 2015. But but it's still, it's just awful. It's horrible to watch it. It's hard to watch it. It's painful to watch. And I hope that at some point in time that it's even more painful for the guy who said all these things. And, and what I mean by that is I hope he gets saved. I hope he gets dramatically saved and looks back at the things that he said and feels exactly the way Job did once God showed up and revealed himself in a different way to him. Because before this, he's, he's experienced God as the one who blesses everything that he does. And, and that they have this relationship that's based on Job's obedience, and then God is bound to do anything, to do certain kinds of things at least. So the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? So I'm hearing a bunch of nonsense down here. Who is this who speaks all these things of me without knowledge? And he says, Dress for action like a man. Put on your big boy britches, because here we go. We're going we're gonna to have a little convo. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. So Job has come to God with all these questions about why these things should happen to him when he's not done anything wrong. And, and, and God's saying, all right, I'm, 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 we're going to deal with that. And the way we're going to deal with it is I'm going to ask you some questions, and so I'm going to put you in the dock, Job. I, I'm not the one who's on trial here. And neither were you, truth to be told, 
God's not going to put Job on trial for anything other than his humanity. In other words, his um, limit limitations by being human as opposed to being God. And sometimes I think this is what we need more than anything else. We, we become so accustomed to what we believe to be the sort of the uh, imminence of God, the, the my buddy kind of thing, and we sing the love songs to God that, that makes it sound like Jesus is your girlfriend. And, and there's nothing horribly wrong with those things, but the problem is we get so bound up in those that we forget that he is indeed the transcendent God who created all the universe and who still holds everything in tension. And so he says, I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this is going to go very well. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Job's going to come out of this unscathed. I think right from the start, I think we're done. If God had only asked that one question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That would have been the end of it. Um, I think we're done, Lord. I, 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 that's it. I, you can't ask me anything else from here that makes any sense because I, I wasn't there. I, I, I was not even a gleam in anybody's eye at that point in time. And he says, who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And so this is sort of the joy of all the heavenly host as God brings forth creation. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? That actually... If I could point to one thing that's, quote, the problem in atheism today, it's that question right there. Who's put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? And atheism knows it, that that's the problem. They've put God in the dock, and they've said, we can explain all these things, except for there's this one thing that can't be understood by science, and it can't be explained by evolutionary biology. And that thing is exactly that. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Where did consciousness come from? Thomas Nagel, who's a, uh, an atheist philosopher, realizes that problem. And Nagel wrote a book a few years ago in which he proposes an answer to that question about where did consciousness come from because he said it's not an emergent property. It can't be cobbled together and suddenly happen because there's no mechanism forgetting to something like consciousness. And so he attacks the problem and, and then proposes, and he's an atheist straight up. I mean, he proposes as the answer to that problem this, that at some point along the evolutionary pathway, something outside the system interjected itself in the system and brought about consciousness. Now, I don't know about you, but that's something that's outside the system that knows the system well enough to break into the system and insert a virus like consciousness has a name. Even in evolutionary biology, even if you follow that logic, that thing that's outside the system that understands all this stuff, that has a vested interest in inserting something into the system to change the system completely by inserting consciousness into some form and part of creation and chooses only that one thing to put consciousness into, has to be called 
God. I mean, there's literally no other option for what that could be. If it's that powerful, if it's that knowledgeable, and if it works that precisely and makes choices about which part of creation to insert that into, that's a God. I don't care how you define it, but you can no longer claim to be an atheist and believe that. So that is the supreme turning point on which atheism falls, is that they have no explanation for that question right there. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom and who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? All that stuff is bound up in Jesus's uh, Sermon on the Mount when he talks about, have you considered the lilies of the field? How they neither toil nor spin, yet they're clothed with splendor greater than anything Solomon ever had? Have you considered the birds of the air, and, and you're worth more than sparrows, but, but it matters to God, and so he provides for all of them. I mean, it's a big job to be God. Are you up to the task there, Job? But, but more than that, what he's, what he's really getting across, and we know it, because at the end of the day, Job more or less acknowledges it in the way that he hears this and responds to God's questions, which are the basis of the argument that God is making, is this, and that is is that, that I've got it all, Job. I've got it all under control. You couldn't possibly understand. The, the answer to why, he says, essentially goes back to the beginning of creation. You'd have to understand everything the way I do, and that, that I saw all this before there was a creation. I, I knew all these things. I, I knew all the problems that would arise. I knew your situation, Job. What would happen to you? Even before creation, I have you in the palm of my hand. You matter to me. Your story matters to me. But our relationship actually matters more than anything. And I want you to understand that our relationship isn't built simply on your obedience. It's the understanding that that I'm here in the midst of of your suffering. And one of the things that, that Job has done in this is similar to what happens with the Israelites in the wilderness, and that is that they're murmuring among themselves and complaining about God's provision in some way or another. Now, in the wilderness, they frequently blamed it on Moses, but it, because well, it's just not okay to blame God, right? That just feels wrong. So they, you know, hey, we make it personal, and we make it about Moses, and we, but we murmur among ourselves, and the problem is God wants us to bring those things to him. Because we are darkening counsel without knowledge when all we're doing is getting the, the opinions of our friends and people around us. God wants us to come to him for the answers to those big questions about why is there suffering. That, that's where he wants us to be. He wants us to be dependent on him because that's the safest place we can be. And so we, we get too big for our britches, and sometimes God has to say, put on your big boy britches and let's talk a little bit. And it's not always fun, it's not always pretty, but but suffering has to have a place in Christian theology. It has to have a place in the way that we think about our lives, because it's part of this world. It's part of this system of this world. I've done uh, a lot of reading this week and a lot of study this week on a couple of really weird things, um, one of which is the Nephilim, which is found in Genesis 6, 1-4, where the sons of God found the 
uh, daughters of women, daughters of man, so appealing that they came down and and procreated with them and and raised up a race of giants. And so I've been listening to a whole lot of stuff about that this week because I've been fascinated with it for a long time. And then also in preparation for this, I did some work on Melchizedek, but it's nowhere near enough. I mean, those are two of the deepest rabbit holes that you'll ever go into in your life. But those things are important. The the Nephilim, one of the things that, that was written about them in the Book of Enoch was that not only did they come down and procreate with women and create these giants, race of giants, Goliath would have been one of those, by the way, um, not only did they do that, they also knew things, angels did, about how to use the earth for your own purposes and, and to, to do uh, sorceries, essentially. And so that was actually one of the things that they were most rebuked for, was that they taught these things to their wives and, and their children. And, and so there's a knowledge that's forbidden for humanity to have, but not for angels to have. And it's forbidden to humanity simply because of one thing, and that is we chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And once we did that, then there were things we could no longer know. Certain kinds of knowledge are foreclosed to us because of sin. And so that's one of the things that's going on here is is that, Job, you can't understand all these things. There's no way I can answer all of this for you for two reasons. One is you, you have limited understanding, because compared to me, you are a, a not an essential being in the universe. You're a contingent being. You, you came into being because of me, because it was my good pleasure for you to come into being. And the other thing is you can't understand everything because you live in a world that's enmeshed in sin and is broken, and it's not the way it ought to be. So there's no easy answers, Job, but trust me, I know the answers. And I understand all these things, and I have a plan for how to deal with all these things. And we see in the gospel, we see this same kind of hubris, arrogance, whatever word you want to use. I try to be careful about arrogance in that. But, um, and we see it with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They come to Jesus and ask him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, you know, can you imagine anybody coming to you and saying, that, Hey, John, we want you to do anything we ask of you. Oh, am I a genie? So Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Wow. Really? Do you want that? That, that huh? Um, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. It's the same thing God says to Job, right? Who, who is it that darkens counsel without wisdom and understanding? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'll be baptized? And they said to him, we're able. Again, you don't know what you're talking about. You do not know the rest of the story, fellas. He says, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I'm baptized you'll be baptized. But to sit at my right or left hand is not mine to grant, but it's for those to whom it's been prepared. In other words, the Father's always had a plan for that. It's not something that I can even influence. That's always been determined since before the creation of the world. Who would sit at my right and left hand when I come into my kingdom, when I come into my glory? That's already been determined by the Father. I, I, I don't even, I wouldn't deign to, to even ask that you be raised into those kinds of positions. And so it's, they don't understand. They can't possibly understand because they're still in denial that when Jesus talks about his death and resurrection, that he even means it or that he's right. I mean, they think he's wrong. And so here they come, and they, when they come, they, they call him teacher. You know, they're, they're not raising up this great appellation, but they see that he's going to come into glory. But 
Jesus kind of sets that aside and says, you are going to have to deal with the same things that I'm going to have to deal with, but, but it's um, a little bit early for you guys to be thinking that you could do that. And we see that on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday when, when they're nowhere to be found, and then they're hiding for fear of the Jews after the crucifixion even after, the re- after they've heard of the resurrection. And so Jesus says, look, this, this is not my call, guys. This is already taken care of. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, you reckon? I mean, how would you feel if you were one of those ten guys? Especially Peter, right? Because Peter was always with them. I mean, this has the potential to crash everything around, and I've certainly seen that happen in in every aspect of my life, where somebody angles for that other position and, and wants to leap ahead to the front of the line, and uh, you know, other people are like, "Well, wait a minute, why not me? Who are they? Who do they think they are?" And, and Jesus sees this, and he calls everybody to him, and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be the slave of all. Well, nobody's ever written a book anywhere (laughs) about how to get ahead that said to act like a servant and a slave. That's actually the way to climb the ladder. Uh, is to do the most menial things possible, but that's exactly what Jesus says. It looks like in his kingdom. So he's reversing the way that you get ahead in the rest of the world by saying this is the way that you need to do that. And, and lest you think that there's some difference here, he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, I, and they're not understanding at this point exactly what this means. Paul does when he's talks about Jesus not counting equality with God as something to be grasped. He, he, he sees that Jesus laid all that down and took on the form of a servant and was found in the form of a servant, and they're not getting that right now because they've still got this idea of an earthly kingdom in mind, that that's why Jesus is here, and it's part of the Messianic expectation. So it's not unfair for them to think that. Everybody thought that. That was, that was what John the Baptist thought. That's exactly what John preached. He's coming with a winnowing fork in his hand. Well, Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world, but through me the world might be saved. So it's a totally different idea about this messianic thing, and it's the reason ultimately that he's rejected, because he's not the Messiah that they had expected, the Messiah they had hoped for. He's not delivering them from Roman bondage. He's delivering them from the bondage of sin and death. That other deliverance comes in the end. The worldly powers are going to be in charge for a longer period of time than we would all like. But they think that it's about to come now, that that kind of kingdom is coming. They believe he's a messianic king. They just don't understand what's going on. But they, but they know one thing, and that is they, they'd like to be right next to him on the throne. They'd like to be his most important advisors, let's say, in that role. In the uh, epistle lesson today from Hebrews 5, um, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to be upfront about that. We have no earthly idea. It's, the grammar is different from Paul. It's different from John, different from Peter, Jude, all of them. It's all different. Um, there, there certainly are uh, speculations about who it was, but we don't know who wrote it, just so you'll know. So we've got, for every high priest chosen from among men is con- 
is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. In other words, it's easy to deal with with those who are ignorant and wayward when you are too. You know, and no matter how much I know, I can't pretend to know everything. I can't even come close, right? I mean, there's so much that I don't know and don't understand, it's beyond belief. And so when when we develop an arrogance, though, about what we know, then God's going to be quick to sort that out for us and let us know you ain't all that in a bag of chips. And so I got some questions for you, see if you can answer these. So, yes, the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. In other words, well, he has a lot in common with those people who are ignorant and wayward. He's because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for his, those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And, and that's an important thing, is, is that even if you're the high priest, again, you might be righteous, but that's a comparative righteousness, to other people, and it's not enough. And you know that it's not enough. You have to offer sacrifices for your sins. So it's why Noah can be righteous in his day and still not be completely righteous. He's righteous for his time. You know, when, when there's no righteousness, Noah shines. And it's it's not that I'm, I'm trying to diss Noah anyway, but, but the language is clear about Noah's righteousness that he is not perfectly righteous. He's righteous for his time. Jesus, on the other hand, is perfectly righteous. In other words, there's no sin, no defect in him at all. He doesn't have to offer any sacrifice for his sins. He is the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And so the writer says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. That's not how he came to earth. He came in a different way. But he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, the Melchizedek doesn't have a beginning. We can get into some odd stuff. We can go down the rabbit hole with this thing and, and look at some, some interesting passages, to say the least. The, some of the scrolls that were found at Qumran have um, uh, just a short, thing about Melchizedek and what that group, at least, believed about Melchizedek. And it, it's certainly interesting. <laughs> it, it, they believe that he is this this really, really high priest who can actually provide in the counsels of the holy. So who is it that darkens counsel without wisdom? Melchizedek, according to the Qumran community, was this priest who could do that, who could come and, and sit in the counsels of the holies. And speak, and the Book of Enoch says that Enoch did the same; that that he was translated to heaven to plead the case for the fallen angels, actually, and so he was their intercessor at some level. And so, when when it says you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that is one of the most strange things you could possibly say of Jesus, because we don't know what is the order of Melchizedek. We understand the Aaronic priesthood because it's it's those who are descended from Aaron, but but. Melchizedek? We have no earthly idea who this man was. He just appears in Genesis 18, and uh, Abraham gives sacrifices to him, gives tithes to him, and then he goes away and disappears. But he's a servant of the Most High God. So we, what is that 
priesthood. We have no earthly idea. It is so odd that the writer grabs this piece, but but it could possibly be informed by that piece I told you about earlier, the understanding that um, the Qumran community had at the time of Jesus, because that's where those scrolls will come from, is from that time, in, in that sort of community that awaited a messianic expectation, they were um, separatists. They didn't think that that the Jerusalem Judaism was uh, sincere enough or severe enough. They saw problems with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everything. They thought that they were all compromised. And so they had pulled themselves away out there, and they preserved these manuscripts. And among them, much of the Old Testament, but, but among those also things like the Book of Enoch, and then also this scroll that has to do with Melchizedek. And so here the, the writer of Hebrews says he's that kind of priest. God, God called him to that priesthood, not the Aaronic priesthood, not the priesthood that, that has to sacrifice for itself, but this Melchizedek priesthood whom even Abraham gave tithes and offerings to. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he, when he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This suffering thing, Jesus had to endure suffering, and so if Jesus endures suffering, and we see it, and we know it, and we, we um, recount it, every single year on Good Friday. And so if Jesus had to suffer in this life to show us how unjust this world is and how far it is away from God, then it seems like maybe, just maybe, we can find a place in our theology for suffering, just like Paul had to do. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I, I'll go on boasting. There's, there's nothing to be gained by it. I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, he's talking about himself, who in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. <clears throat> This third heaven thing, again, that's another thing that comes from the book of Enoch, which is a, a pseudepigraphal book. It's not even in the Apocrypha. It's beyond. It's outside of that. And he heard things that cannot be told. He summoned himself, which man may not utter. So in other words, there's stuff that I was told when I was taken up to heaven that I can't even say. And it's similar to what I was telling about earlier with the angels whose knowledge is supposed to remain there. We see it also with Daniel. Daniel's told to write things down, to, to not write things down and to seal them up. And then we see the same thing in John in the Revelation. That there's certain things that are revealed to them that they're not allowed to tell. And so that's Paul saying here, hey, there's stuff that I know that I can't tell. On behalf of this man, I'll boast, but on my own behalf... I'll not boast, except of my weakness. And then he goes on from there to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Thirty times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We don't like being weak. We like being strong. We don't like to suffer. We like blessing. He said, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That 
needs to be our attitude. We need to have no fear of man. We need to have one simple thing in our mind, and that is the humility of, of standing before the living God who created all things and, and knowing his deep, deep love for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the story, it's not the cross, it's the resurrection. And so will our story not end with death? We can take Job's response to God's question. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? The answer to that, therefore I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Here, and I'll speak. I'll question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God didn't want to crush Job. He wanted Job to know him and trust him. And that's what he wants for us. And when we're in suffering, it's perfectly all right to cry out to God. It's perfectly all right to, to rail against the injustice in the world and injustice in this life. But ultimately, we need to take Job's attitude and Paul's attitude of saying, I'm content in my weakness because there I know the power of Christ and the strength of Christ in me.